up afterwards and talk to her because she really does have a cool story and, and she didn't really get to describe her 11 months in 11 different countries uh, but that that sounds pretty cool too and I want to hear those stories too so have your Bibles turn to Ecclesiastes chapter 1 we are starting this book we've never taught through the Old Testament at the table so um, it's been fun to uh, it's been fun studying for this Honestly, I've never taught through Ecclesiastes as a, as a whole, um, and I am learning a ton, and it's, it, it started rough, I'll be honest. Um, me and Ecclesiastes were duking it out last week, but I'm starting to like this book more and more and more. So, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to read the first verse, and then, and then I'm going to stop and kind of pause and give some direction to what... Um, what, like who the author is, what the title is about, where it comes from, all that stuff. So, Ecclesiastes chapter 1, verse 1. The words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. So, this word Kohelet, okay, is a word that you're going to hear me say over and over and over. Kohelet. Q-O-H-E-L-E-T-H. Kohelet. From this word, we get both the title and we have a clue. It gives us a clue of who the author is. Um, so let me, let me first start with the title. The, um, the word itself actually derives from this word that means, uh, means assembly or call together or um, to collect and so, the Ecclesiastes actually is a Latin translation, okay, track with me. It's the Latin translation of the Greek translation of the Hebrew word, Kohelet, okay? So, if you've heard of, like, us talk about ecclesiology, ecclesiology is the study of the church, the assembly. So, ecclesiology comes from this idea of this, the assembly, the church. Ecclesiastes has nothing to do with the church, nothing. It's, it's not about a gathering. There's nothing you do. And so what, what happened is, the, this word, Kohelet, as they're trying to understand what this word means, and, how it, it, and because it's used in this personal sense, it's referring to a, a person, they kind of refer to this person as the preacher, or the teacher, or the one who calls the assembly together. And so that's how, that's how Ecclesiastes got its name. Um, that's where... Uh, that's where we get this idea of who, who this preacher is. Now, the author, anybody want to take a stab at who the author is? I'm not sure, actually, anymore. You asked me three weeks ago, and I would have told you 100% it's Solomon, because that's, that's who we quote. Now, I'm not so sure. Okay, So let me, let, me, let me give you some reasons for it being Solomon. And let me give you some reasons against it being Solomon, and then I'll give you my conclusion. Here's some reasons for. Um, chapters 1 and 2 refer to, uh, for the, the Kohelet refers to himself in, as, in royal, as royalty. Okay, so he says things like son of David. Um, uh, later on in verse, I think it's 12, it says king over Israel in Jerusalem. Um, later on it talks about the, you know, no other king before me, things like that. So chapters 1 and 2 refer to himself as royalty. Uh, second reason for it is we know no other king who had as much wisdom as Solomon had, who, who could have lived as, as an extravagant life as is described in this book. The, the Kohelet describes you know, basically not saying no to his heart, giving in to whatever his heart wanted, chasing after everything, right? Only... Solomon's the only king that we know that could have really done that. He was the richest king in Israel. So those are, and, and then the last one is tr Jewish tradition has Solomon as, as the author. Okay. Here's some reasons against that idea. Um, the name Solomon is never mentioned. And you think, well, that's not a big deal. Well, Proverbs and Ecclesiastes, he mentions his name, but Solomon is never mentioned. Uh, it's referred to, maybe but never mentioned. Chapters 3 through 12 refer to the king in third person. So there's some sort of a shift that takes place. And, and, the, and, and Kohelet now is, instead of 
instead of being the ruler, is observing the ruler, is more of an observer of life and refers to the king in third person. And so um, some think, okay, that may be a clue. Uh, and, then, and, and then at the beginning, there's this introduction. The very first verse I read is somewhat of an introduction to the, what's, with the whole book. And then at the very end, and Drew's going to refer to this later tonight, the last few verses, chapter 12, 9 through 14, seems to be like this conclusion and summary of what's, everything that's been said. Almost like it's a different person concluding and summarizing. So there's, there appears to be, maybe, someone introducing, and then you have this whole speech, and then you have this conclusion and summary at the end. At least, at least it can kind of appear that way. So there might be a, a second party involved, at least one others. So um, here's my conclusion, is that Solomon, at, Solomon or at, at, at least his, his wisdom and his teachings are all over this book, are present in this book. I just don't know how. Um, I, I, I honestly don't. After reading everything, I, I read four different commentaries. Three don't believe it's Solomon, and one still holds to it. Um, and so, I, I don't know. I think Solomon's all over this book. I just don't know how. Um, I don't know if that ruins anything for you guys. Okay? I apologize. I'm just letting, the, letting what I discover kind of be the issue. Um, again, because of the personal language used, it makes, it makes sense that the preacher is someone who is preaching this, this message about his observations of, of life, and there seems to be someone who's introducing and, and concluding. So there, I, I believe there's at least a, another party that is compiling this talk and introducing it and concluding and summarizing it. The Bible Project, which is this uh, great ministry, if you guys haven't checked out, uh, when you get a chance, go to the Bible Project. What, they do a phenomenal job of summarizing books of the Bible in light of the whole story of God. And they do a phenomenal job. They sketch it out, and you get to see picture. Anyway, they've got a couple different ones on, on Ecclesiastes. And right now they're in the process of, of making these three that deal with Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, and Job, and they're lumping them together as, the wisdom, as wisdom literature. But they, what, what, how they describe it is, is there is an author. They kind of have it like this. Imagine you're at a, um, like you're, you're at a, a theater, okay? And someone comes out, and, it's, and it happens to be, in this case, the author. And the author introduces the person who's going to come and give the speech. So they introduce the, the speaker. The speaker comes, gives his presentation, and then goes back, and then the narrator, the author, comes back out and summarizes what's been said. And that's how, kind of how they present it. And they present it as the author, and they present the, the preacher, Kohelet, as the skeptic, smoking a pipe, <laughs> observing life, right? Um, and I, I, th- when I saw that, it, it really, because I was trying to make sense of how this book works and the context of who's writing and what, what they're writing about, and um, once, once that picture in, came in mind, it really helped me understand the book a little bit, or at least know how to put it in context. So that's kind of where I'm at. I, I, I think Solomon's involved. I think he's all over it. I just don't, exactly, don't know exactly how. So before I jump into the rest of the, these verses, um, I, I want to give just one kind of guiding principle tonight, um, for, not just for tonight, but also for the rest of the study as we study Ecclesiastes. I think this will be huge for us um, to have. And it's this. Embrace the tension in this book. Okay? Embrace the tension in this book. Because the more you want life to be secure and controllable or safe and comfortable or neat and tidy, the more you want that to be what life is, is like, the more frustrated you're going to be with Ecclesiastes. Because Kohelet is going to smack you upside the head with life and the realities that come with life. Because not everything works out perfect. Not everything is as clear, right, as, as Claire is describing. She thought it was one way, and then, she, and then she's waiting, and it's like, wait a minute, I thought you are supposed to have it all figured out by the time you're 24. It's just not that simple. It's more complicated than that. 
So resist, so here's, here's the next thing. Resist the temptation to yeah, but Kohelet. Okay, what I mean by this, there's, he's going to make claims, and, and I'm going to teach through them. He's going to make claims, and you're going to want to, yeah, but what about, I, I want to I ask to resist that temptation um, because you'll miss something if you quickly try to dismiss the tension and try to resolve it. And the, and the, the chance that you, early 20s, can actually resolve the tension quicker than Kohelet is presenting is probably proof that you, you might be proving his point um, a little bit. The more you're trying to prove him wrong, you might actually be proving him right. Um, so, and then lastly, you can't gain the wisdom that Kohelet is offering if you're not willing to embrace the tension that he's observing. Let me say that again. You can't gain the wisdom that Kohelet is offering in this book if you're not willing to embrace the tension that he's observing in life. Because he's going to describe some, some interesting realities about life, and we'll get into it here in, uh, in, with this next verse. Um, vanity of vanities. Verse 2 says the preacher, Vanity of vanities. All is vanity. Okay? This word, vanity, is the Hebrew word, Habel, or sometimes, sometimes the B is interchanged with a V, Havel. Um, Habel. And Habel is used 37 times in Ecclesiastes. It's a central theme to understanding what Kohelet is, is saying. Okay? The, the word is often translated as vanity, futile, fleeting, or maybe my least favorite, NIV, meaningless. That's how it's translated. Um, life is meaning, meaningless, meaningless, all is meaningless. What does that mean? Well, li- literally, the word means vapor or smoke. And so I have something. That, oh, you know what I forgot to do? Somebody run up here, please. Whoever you are, somebody. And fill this with water. or Just fill it up to that red line. <laughs> fill it up to the red line. I forgot to fill it up. Because I want, I want you guys to have this picture, and I forgot to do that earlier. I want you to have this picture of what we're talking about. The word literally means vapor, smoke, or mist. Okay? Vapor, smoke, or mist. So, enter our... This is called a diffuser. My wife puts oil in it somehow thinks it's going to magically make us all healthy. Yes. There's no oil in it now, I don't think. Mm, it smells good, though. There's some, there is a little bit of residue left. All right. See, this, see the vapor? Yeah. Okay. This is, this is Habel. This is what Habel is describing. Vapor, smoke, mist. Um... Metaphorically, it, it, uh, it means this, the elusiveness of, of human existence, okay? The elusiveness of human, not, not meaningless, not life is meaningless, life is elusive. Just when I think I have it, I don't. It slips through my fingers. Uh, like one commentary said, Kohelet uses this to highlight the elusiveness of the world which slips through the fingers and escapes all our efforts to manage it. To control it. He's talking about control. He's talking about controlling life. Um, and so life is like a vapor. You can't control, manipulate, or manage. Okay? Mist. Vapor. Habel. Um, verses 3 and 4. Okay? Here's what he says. What does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? A generation goes and a generation comes, but the earth remains forever. So this verse, okay, is giving us the context in which Kohelet is, is observing life. Okay, notice he says he re- references man. Okay, he's um, what what follows is his observations about life from a human human perspective, from 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 an earthly perspective. Okay, from his experiences. 
Uh, he's not describing life from God's perspective. He's not describing anything else, but simply his observations and experience from the perspective. And then it says, under the sun, which refers to the place in which he's describing, the earth. He's not describing heaven. He's not describing where God dwells. He's describing here on earth. These are the things that he's observing. Um, and he says, man is transitory, but the earth is permanent. Okay? So he questions the purpose and, or temporariness of our toil, our work, the effort in which we have, you know, put forth here on earth. Um, he says we work as if we are controlling the outcomes, trying to change the world, make a difference, only to be destroyed, only to pass away. So I was in Israel this summer, and real quick, there is uh, anything that's a tell, okay, it's like this archaeological dig. And so a tell is usually a, an ancient city that they're digging up and trying to see how many layers of civilization and what they can learn about each civilization. So there's a tell called Megiddo, Megiddo, and it lays right on this hill overlooking the Jezreel Valley. Um, it's, where we get the, it's where we get the phrase Armageddon, because this is where this, this is the Battle of Armageddon, Megiddo. Um, and Megiddo sits at, right, at this bay, right at this hill and right along this really important trade route from Egypt to, to Assyria. Anybody, so anybody who controlled Megiddo controlled the, the money, the equity, the economy that traveled through that area. So most, most civilizations, most cities or tells or archaeological have anywhere from 6 to 7 to 10 to 15 like layers of civilization, meaning... Um, it was built, it was destroyed, and then built another civilization built on top of it. And, and then someone came in and destroyed it. And then they just used the stones to build, they level it all out and use the stones to build a new city. Megiddo has 26 layers, which means it, from its existence, 26 times it's been built and destroyed and rebuilt and destroyed and rebuilt and destroyed. 26 layers of civilization. You and I don't even know what that means. Like, I stood on this ground where for thousands of years um, people have been coming in and, and going. So, so think about, a, think about a, 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 um, a carpenter the very first time the city was discovered and built. He's building houses. He thinks, I'm going to create this great city. It's going to be, right, his efforts like, like vapor. He thinks he's got it figured out. He has no idea what's coming. And if the mountains could talk, right, they would see these people coming and going, building, dying, everything being destroyed. That's what he's describing uh, here in these verses. So next, Kohelet is going to point to four examples from nature um, to help illustrate um, further how life is like a vapor. So here's what he says in 5 through 8. He says, The sun rises and the sun goes down, hastens to the place where it, where it rises. The wind blows to the south and goes around to the north. Around and around goes the wind, and on its circle circuits the wind returns. All streams run to the sea, but the sea is not full. To the place where the streams flow, there they flow again. All things are full of weariness, and man cannot utter it. The eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor the ear filled with hearing. Okay? So he points to the weariness of life and life going round and round. So the, the sun just going round and round. The wind blowing starts bl to blow south and eventually it blows north. The, okay, the water that's in the, in the rivers flowing evaporates into the air and then the rain falls and it comes right back down. And, and all the while he's, he's asking this question, what's the point? Like, what's satisfied through all of this? And so, you can't stop the wind, no matter how hard you try. You can't stop the sun. Um, the, the, the rain just kind of does, the water just kind of does what it wants. The, uh, the sea is never satisfied with the water. It's never full. The eyes can never see enough. The ears can never hear enough. Your body is never satisfied. Think about the time you were really hungry. You had a great meal. Ah, you sat down, you're satisfied, only to find four or five hours later what's happening. Your stomach's growling again. Like your body is never satisfied. Within yourself, you cannot 
you cannot be satisfied. You cannot find the meaning within yourself. You cannot find the meaning to life. It's not that this, this idea of, of, of Habel, it's not that life is meaningless. It's that, the, it's that the meaning of life isn't clear. And within ourselves, we can't find it. Verses 9 through 11. What has been is what will be. And what has been done is what will be done. And there is nothing new under the sun. Is there a thing of which it is said, See, this is new. It has been already in the, in the ages. It has been already in the ages before. There is no remembrance of former things, nor will there be any remembrance of later things, yet to be among, yet to be among those who come after. So he says there is a weariness in doing much and getting nowhere. It's, it's wearisome to do so much and then you die. And your ideas and your efforts and all of that pass away. And at some point, no one forgets them. And even worse, no one, sorry, no one remembers. No, that's what I meant to say. No one remembers. No one forgets. That's great. Yeah. It's the opposite of what he's saying. Um, nobody remembers your efforts. Nobody remembers you at some point. Right? So just when we think we've, we, we've done something to make life better, just when we think we've, we've built upon something else as if where we're going, we're, we're, we're building to something that's going to fully satisfy. And what he's saying is, oh gosh, if the mountains, if the earth could talk, he would say, oh, you silly people. You come and go. You build things. It gets destroyed, and the earth remains. Um, and, and so he's describing the sober reality of our existence. James says that our life is but a mist, here today and gone tomorrow. See, James is channeling his inner Kohelet uh, when he says that. He's, he's describing what, what, what this author is saying. And he says there's nothing new. And I, and I read that, and I want to say, yeah, but... What about inventions? What about technology? And, and the, more I th the more I thought about it, and as I studied, I think what he's describing isn't those things in particular, but the underlining principles and the underlying purpose and the reason behind those things to improve life, to make it more efficient, to make it more effective, to have a better life. We are in search of finding full satisfaction in life. And we can't do it. And we've been trying for years, forever, for centuries, since the beginning of time, to make life better. And is life better? Kohelet saying, yeah, you come and go. You die, and everything you love dies with it. There's this thing that says, the more things change, the more they stay the same. Have you ever tried to convince a 90-year-old that, that they need Twitter um, to have a satisfying life? I mean, think about that. You, you guys know any 90-year-olds? Maybe great-grandparents would be my grandparents, but great-grandparents? Try to convince them that they need Twitter, that Twitter is going to make their life satisfied. <laughs> like, in that question, like, in that conversation, you're going to quickly realize Kohelet has something here for us. Verse 11 concludes, not only will the past and the future efforts and all of our, and all of our improvements, will, all, none of that will will be remembered, but he, he says, and those with it. So, either will we. Again, he's describing the sober reality of, of life coming and going. So, what is it we're striving for? What is it we're after? And uh, I'm not sure Drew's going to fix all that tension for us, but I want you to sit in it um, for a little bit. So, we're going to take a break, and then Drew will get up and uh, and and... Take it from there.
Yeah, and I'll probably have you start in one participate in this. Um, some details is that it, and I don't want you guys to panic, but it is $35 a person um, until October 14th. Yes. It's up over here. Excellent question. Color Run is a fun five-day where as you run, there's an event um, this year, and they will throw paint at you. And so, if for for my guys that are like me, it's like, hold on, you want me to pay to run and get paint thrown on me? I understand. Aha. But we're trying to raise money for Stillwater Life Services and do this as a group. Are you going to run it? If you want to learn more about Stillwater Life Services, you can ask Drew or Kelsey or Scott afterwards. But uh, just some details. It's thirty-five dollars. Yeah. If you don't want to run, you can still donate or help someone else pay the cost to and get involved. But if you are any kind of interested, come talk to me afterwards. All right, so more information to come, pay attention. A couple of other things to just uh, throw past you guys real quick. Um, one is that next Thursday, so a week from today, we are leaving for a mission trip to go to Dallas, and it is gonna be awesome. There's no cost to go except just your food fees when you're there. So if you are interested in signing up for that or getting to know a little bit more information, go ahead and text this number right here. Text Dallas to that number, and uh, it'll give you a form, and it'll give you some, like, packing list and other info. Try to register for that ASAP. Secondly, table shirts were so popular this year that we decided we're going to make an order form open for anybody who wants to buy one. So if you want to buy one, text the same number, but text table shirt, and you can pay online. Um, and get one. You have different color options. And then last thing is that, um, actually two last things. Tomorrow night is a food truck Friday night, so meet downtown where we normally meet in front of Stillwater Art Museum at 6. Um, and we'll go through food truck Friday together. And then last thing is if you did not get into a table group this year and you are really bummed about that, which you should be, there's actually a group that you can get into that's an open group on Monday nights. Uh, we meet at my house. Um, we normally have like coffee or hot chocolate or food or something. No promises, but sometimes. And it starts at 7 o'clock on Monday night. So if you are interested in joining that group or if you have a friend who might be interested in attending that group and you can come with them, it's a co-ed group. You're welcome to come. So we're going through the Book of Acts, and it's super awesome. Hey. So if you want to learn more about that, come see me after this, and I can give you my address and stuff. So last, last announcement. If you are participating in the Adopt-a-Home program with Sunnybrook, 
that kickoff lunch is this Sunday. You should have received an email if you signed up. Please make sure you respond back that you're coming in RSVP to that so we make sure we have plenty of food for everybody who's going to be attending. Awesome. All set. A lot of stuff there, but a lot of good stuff. I hope you guys will look into uh, look into some of that stuff from the color run to open table group. Could be really, really great. As we, as I'll just say one quick thing on on that open table group. One of the reasons we really did design that is we want people who maybe came in later to be able to connect. Uh, but also for those of you who have friends that you'd love to like get involved, but you go like Thursday nights maybe just a little bit nuts. Um, it's just full in here and we spend over an hour lecturing through the Bible like I don't know if my friend would, would like that that much like that would be a great place to take them to an open group of a smaller environment where they could get to meet some people and still still dig into God's word um, just kind of in a little bit more discussion oriented uh, person so I'd love for you to have that in mind is there someone that I could kind of take to that group with me to, to kind of get to know some some of the people here at the table that would be awesome alright Ecclesiastes um, what is this book about? Um, it is a strange and disheartening book, um, the book of Ecclesiastes, a, a disturbing book in some ways, and, and one that really is a lot, uh, very different um, from a lot of others. I, I love, I think it was the Bible Project, that jointhebibleproject.com is what, what Scott was referring to. I think it was then that said, the voice of God in the Old Testament speaks in a lot of different accents. And, and Ecclesiastes is its own unique accent um, for the voice of God, and it really is an interesting. Ecclesiastes is is definitely not a coffee mug book. Okay, um, what I mean by that is that is that's kind of a favorite thing of Christians is to take take verses and stick them on a coffee mug. Jeremiah twenty nine eleven is a popular one. Throw that up there. Know the plans I have for you. Right? Um, Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. Right? Philippians 4.13, these, these verses that we want to put on coffee mugs or calendars, people don't use Ecclesiastes very often for coffee mugs. Right? Like you don't see anybody's put um, Ecclesiastes 5.17, in all his days man sits in darkness in much vexation and sickness and anger. Drink up. Right? Uh, People don't, people don't like sign notes to their friends with Ecclesiastes references at the bottom, you know? Um, hey, Anthony, is, you know, just wanted you to know, wanted to give you a note, wanted to let you know I'm thinking about you, praying for you, you know what I mean? Have a good day at work and everything. By the way, Ecclesiastes 11.8, the days of darkness will be many, all that comes is vanity. Have a great day, Drew. Like we don't. We don't tag that on to our, to our notes very often. It just, just doesn't work real well. It, it, is a, it is a different kind of book. But Ecclesiastes focuses on something that, is, um, that runs deep in every one of us. Like we, we could slap it on more stuff. It wouldn't be very encouraging, but we could put these verses on a lot more stuff because it's something that every one of us can relate to. In fact, it's something that actually works, I believe, would... would be a passage that a lot of people who don't even believe in the Bible, don't even believe in Jesus, could relate to heavily because Ecclesiastes hits on this thing that all of us experience, and that is this search for meaning. This idea that there must be something more. And I believe this, um, honestly, that every person on the planet has this innate sense that life ought to have some bigger meaning or purpose than what I see in front of me. Um, that my life ought to be for something else, something bigger, something greater than just myself. I believe everybody has that within them. In fact, I think that that is um, actually a pretty strong evidence for the existence of a creator, um, is that everybody on some level already knows that there's something bigger than what they can see in front of them that there ought to be a greater purpose and meaning. It's, it's innate in all of us. And now, there are some people who have come to the conclusion that life really is meaningless and that there's nothing to it and all we are is just kind of this combination of molecules that are made up and, and when we're done, we're done. There's some people who have come to that conclusion, but almost nobody starts there. And even those who've come to that conclusion, come to that conclusion at great pains, like there's this piece of them that must get ripped out of them when they come to that. Because we all know it. 
And I believe that it is. It's proof for the existence of God, something greater. There are some people who might say, no, 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 that's, that would simply be a nice byproduct of natural selection. That those creatures with this feeling of a greater purpose to their life that they must live for, they're the ones who are most likely to continue on in life. And I would argue actually the opposite. Um, that actually it does not do creatures a lot of good to have this sense of purpose when it comes to simple survival. Those animals, those creatures who don't have to think about the meaning of life and whether or not they're living it up to, all they do is survive. All they do is eat and sleep and mate. They've got a much better shot of survival. It does not do you a lot of good, uh, a lot of good in the jungle to sit in a tree and just ponder the meaning of existence, right? Um, think of, like, it's true that when you, when you feel like you've found your purpose or your meaning, that it can actually help you on in your life and move forward, but, but think about how much actually this issue, how much trouble this causes in our lives. For those creatures who don't perceive purpose or meaning, that is, all animals, have no worries in this area, but, but human beings who need it, who know it's got to be there and cannot find it, their lives crumble when they can't. They live in a constant stress that, that does brutal work on their bodies trying to find it. Sometimes they go off of the very things that would help them to survive the most. Eating well and sleeping well, they, they don't do those things because of this longing for, for meaning, trying to find those things. And, and it can even lead in things like suicide. You don't, you don't find a lot of animals going through midlife crisis, right? <laughs> You don't find animals ending it all because they can't find anything to do. No, no, no. Natural selection could not bring this in us. The reason we long for something deeper is because we know deep down in our heart of hearts that there is something deeper, that there is something greater to be longed for, but it is difficult to get our, um, our hands upon. It is difficult to be able to grasp it like vapor. And that's what makes this issue of meaning so crazy and so difficult. The writer of Ecclesiastes says, because we long for it so much, but because it is so much like vapor, we will run searching for it, hunting it down in a thousand different places. And he actually goes through the book describing that, this hunt for existence or, or for meaning and for purpose. Um, we're going to march through a number of these kind of as we go. So as we go through this book, we're not going to go through it in the same way that we usually walk through books of the Bible. That is, usually we do this kind of verse-by-verse verse expository teaching through the, te through the Bible. Um, we're still going to take a text at a time and walk through it verse-by-verse, verse, but we're kind of hand-picking some because we want to hit more on the themes of Ecclesiastes and some of the different ways that people hunt down meaning. So we're going to see the writer of Ecclesiastes, or the teacher, the Kohelet, talk about seeking wisdom above all else. He's going to talk about the accumulation of knowledge and experience and education as a means to a fuller and meaningful life. He's going to talk about his own experience in doing that and what led him down that path and where that path ultimately led him to. He's going to talk about pleasure and the seeking of comfort and gratification as a means to an enjoyable life. This idea that goes, I don't know what lies beyond, but I do know that what I can do and what I'm going to do is try to get as much pleasure out of the life that I have in front of me as I possibly can. And maybe in that I will find some form of meaning. Maybe in that I will find some, uh, some sort of joy in my life. And he's going to talk about, and therefore we're going to talk about, what it looks like when a person runs after those things and where that leads us. He's going to talk about wealth, the accumulation of money and resources as a means to a secure and happy life. And this is one that has run deep in people from the beginning, um, to gather to ourselves as much as possible, believing that in the gathering that we also gather to ourselves significance. And we also gather to ourselves joy, that we gather to ourselves life itself. We're going to talk about that. We're going to talk about success, the pursuit of accomplishment as a means towards significance and worth, which is going to be a big one at this stage of life for you guys. 
is running after, running after the fullest degree, this major that you have to lead you to therefore this career that you will have and to try and be as successful as possible as a means of, of showing to myself that I matter, of showing to myself that this life that I'm living is worth living, that, 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 that it counts that I'm here, that it matters whether or not I'm here. And, and, the, and the, the teacher is going to have some fairly disparaging things to say to us all of these things, whether it is wealth or success or wisdom or pleasure or what, what have you. They're all looking for the same stuff. They're all looking for meaning and purpose and identity. But the teacher is going to explain to us that there are at least three big problems in every one of those pursuits. In every pursuit you, pursuit you will have for meaning or purpose, there are these three main problems that run through the book of Ecclesiastes that it comes back to a bunch. The first one is time. And that's what we looked at in our opening text today. That is that the universe um, is going to move on without you. That the universe and the earth was here long before you ever came onto the scene. And this little speck of existence that you call your life is going to happen in a flash. And when it's all done, everything just keeps going. Whatever you've done in that time doesn't really matter. The universe keeps going. And the second big thing, big problem with your pursuit of these things is death. That is, you can chase and chase and chase, but you only have a limited time to do so. That death is coming and there is nothing you can do to escape it. There's no way around it. And when that death comes, it will rob you of whatever you've grabbed the hold of in the short time that you have. So to take these two big things, this is how the teacher, this is how the Kohelet is going to talk to us as we walk through this book. He'll say, basically, so you, let's just say that you become insanely wealthy. Let's just say that you do all of you, all that you can, that you make really wise financial decisions. Let's just say that your business is successful, that you invest well, and you just inherit vast amounts of wealth to yourself. And you build the biggest houses, and you have the nicest cars, and you do all of these things. What the teacher will say to you is, soon enough you will die, and someone else gets all of it. And a hundred years from now, no one will care. No one is going to look back and try and count up the amount of money that you had a hundred years earlier. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter at that point. It doesn't matter to anybody. He says, let's just say that you gain knowledge. Let's say that you move forward in the major that you have onto your master's work, that you get a PhD, that you become even an expert in your field, someone who is sought after for knowledge in this particular area. Soon, the teacher says, you'll die. And a hundred years from now, it will not make a bit of difference how much you knew about the French Revolution or the theory of relativity or about teaching third graders. None of that matters in a hundred years. It doesn't matter how much more education you get in the next couple of years. A hundred years from now, maybe 50 years from now, for some of us, maybe as short as five years from now, does not matter. He says, let's just say that you achieve great success that you go out and you accomplish all the things you hope to accomplish, that you make your way to the top of the ladder and you're that person that when people look at you, they point and say, I want to be like that. I want to do what she does. I want to do what he does. He says, soon enough, you'll catch a common theme here, soon enough you're going to die. And a hundred years from now, none of those accomplishments will be doing anything for you. And not only that, everyone who is impressed by you will be gone too. And so even that little bit of um, pleasure or joy you get from people thinking you're great, from encouraging you, um, that's all gone too. All those people who thought you were cool were great. If you combine them all and you use your finances and you use your great knowledge and you use all of your successes, even for altruistic motives, let's see, say you develop um, some amazing new technology that becomes life-saving and does some radical things in the world of medicine. He says, all you've come to do, you're not actually doing any life-saving. All you're actually doing is prolonging the little speck of someone's existence by 10 or 15 years to a slightly 
bigger speck of existence. And then they're gone too. No matter what you do, he says, time moves on without you, death comes and gets you, and eventually people will forget. And eventually what you've done and what you've amassed and what you've accomplished will come to nothing. And then there's this third thing. So, so time and death become really big. You'll see time a lot at the front and you'll see death a lot at the, at the end. But this third thing that gets kind of woven in that is really frustrating in all of it is the randomness of it all. The sheer randomness of everything. So, so the teacher's going to tell you that there are some things that are actually probably better to lean towards. He'll say, it is better to seek after wisdom than to seek after folly or foolishness. That's true. But he says, that is no guarantee of anything for you. Like, you can seek after wisdom, you might still die faster than the fool. You can, you can spend your life running after righteousness. That does not guarantee you success. It does not guarantee you tomorrow. It does not guarantee you fame or joy or anything else. Like, it might happen, but it might not. And, and one of the things that he says that is so tragic, the word he kind of uses is evil, actually. But what kind of he means by that kind of like tragic or brutal is the sheer randomness of not even knowing if what I'm going to do, if, if X plus Y is going to equal Z or not. There's no way to know that, he says. And because of these things, because of, because of that, you cannot control these things. Two and a half years ago, April 2014, my dad, who's, who's um, what would he be, 56 right now, so he'd have been 54, and, and, and as about almost as healthy a 54-year-old as you could, you could have, he, he loved to run and, and, uh, and, and loved to work out and all of those things. He's in better shape than I am, and, and one morning he went for a run and uh, he didn't, didn't feel the greatest a little bit afterwards. Something started feeling weird, and he had a massive heart attack and, uh, and just kind of fell over there in the middle of the house after I think, I think my mom saw. He, he laid down, and she called, and, and the ambulance came, and, and they, they rushed him to the hospital, and he, they got him into this, this, weirdly enough, they had just in Muskogee, Oklahoma, which is not really known for its amazing medical field or whatever, literally a week before they had flown in this um, crazy expert heart surgeon from Phoenix to start working in Muskogee randomly of all places. And, and my dad, even though he had 100% blockage in his main artery, um, which is the one they call the widow maker, um, because people usually don't make it into the hospital at that point, 100% blockage in his main artery and 95% blockage in another somehow survived it and somehow made it through. And and it was this kind of amazing blessing, this amazing, seemed to be miracle that God prolonged my dad's life. And so he gets back um, to, to work. He works at a church and, and he's there. And of course, people are coming up and talking to him. One of the guys who came up to talk to him and was the most interested was a guy named Tom. Uh, Tom's actually my former boss in high school and in college. I worked for Tom every summer. Um, and uh, a good dude. Um, Tom, uh, one of the reasons he was so interested is because he had had some heart issues himself. Now, my dad was fairly healthy. He, he worked out, but he didn't actually eat real good, and that was his problem. He didn't eat real well. Tom worked out like crazy, cycled, like biked everywhere he went, and lifted weights, and ran, and did all of these things. And then on top of that, ate all the food that like nobody wants to really even eat, right? Um, but because he was so concerned with his health and so obsessed with making sure that he knew that this was fragile and taking care of it the best he could. And so he goes to my dad and he's talking to him about anything, tips that my dad may have gotten from the doctor because Tom wants to put it into practice. And Tom was meticulous about making sure that he controlled his health. And about three and a half months later, at around the exact same age as my dad, Tom um, killed over in the middle of his house and died of a heart attack. And, and I remember thinking to myself as I went to the funeral, seeing my dad, who, who just a few months later had, had, had experienced the same thing and was less healthy and somehow made it, and seeing this guy obsessed with keeping control of his health and doing everything he could and just realizing, in the end, there's nothing I can do. And that doesn't mean I throw it all away. It just means I'm not, I ultimately have no control. We don't. There is a randomness to all of it. And, and um, to be 
perfectly wise or to be perfectly righteous or to be perfectly healthy doesn't guarantee you the things you may want in life. Let's just say that one of these things, wealth or success or pleasure, is the answer. The writer says the randomness of life says you, you may not have very long at all to be able to get to those things. And if you get to those things, it doesn't really assure you of much. So I know what you're all thinking. This is going to be a blast. Yeah. Um, so excited to jump into this super depressing book. Um, you should actually be excited. And, and, and the more I've studied, kind of like Scott recently, the more excited I am because the author, so, so Scott kind of mentioned it, it, it kind of looks to us, unless somebody's just kind of using a literary device, it looks to us like there is an author who introduces Kohelet, the teacher there, who opens it up and introduces us to him and then closes by kind of summing up what he says. And that author, the one who comes in at the end, is telling you that the teacher in all of this depressing stuff that he's saying, that he's giving you a gift. That, that you ought to be excited about it, that you ought to be appreciative of it. This is what he says at the very end of the book. Chapter 12, verse 11. The words of the wise, he's kind of touching on the teacher, the words of the wise are like goads, and like nails firmly fixed are the collected sayings. They are given by one shepherd. So the words of the wise, this book is like a goad. And a goad was a sharp stick that you could use as you're plowing, actually, to, to kind of point into the side of an oxen to steer it, or of an ox to steer it, or of sheep, like a shepherd on his staff might have kind of a crook on one side that he could use to kind of get around the sheep's neck, but on the other end it could be sharp so you could poke the sheep and send them the way that it goes. And, and what the word picture that he's pointing here is a goad was something that could be painful, but also helpful. See, the shepherd knows where the sheep is supposed to go. And even when he kind of jabs that sheep there, the sheep might not like it in the moment, but it's actually really, really good for the sheep. And this is what the author is saying, is that the teacher is giving you something good. He's doing you a favor. This is what Derek Kidner, one Old Testament scholar, says, that the writer of Ecclesiastes is coming in and he's just demolishing, like your worldview. But he says this, he's demolishing in order to build. He's demolishing in order to build. In other words, the teacher here is not bringing a wrecking ball through our lives just for the sake of kind of leaving a mess. What he's doing is the world has built you this really, really shaky house and has said, this is where you should live. This is how you should go about your life. This is the way to meaning. This is the way to purpose. This is the way to joy. And the writer of Ecclesiastes is looking at the foundation of that thing. And he's looking at the, at the shoddy nails that are there holding it together. And he's looking at the crappy roof and he's going, that will never take care of you. And so what Ecclesiastes is designed to do is to come in and wipe out that shaky house that the world keeps pointing you to so that we can build a new one. So we can build something that will last. We can build something that is going to matter. And what is that? What is it that he wants to build in its place? Look what he says just a verse or two later. Verse 13 of chapter 12. This is the author's summary of all the teacher's teaching. The end of the matter, all has been heard. Fear God and keep His commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. When all is said and done, the writer of Ecclesiastes and then the author coming by him will say this, that only one thing will matter with your life, and that is the way you approached God. That was your approach to Him, whether you made it your duty to obey and know and love and follow Him or not, is all that's going to matter when it's all said and done. Because He is the only one who can control the randomness of life. He's the only one who has control of time, and He's the only one who has control of death. Which means, now that can be scary to say, you have no control of those things, but this is freedom because what He says is, you don't have to keep trying. You can't control life. You can't make it work the way you want. So here's the good news. You can let go. You don't have to keep clinging onto those things to do it because there's someone else who can control it. You can hand that stuff over to Him. 
God, he says, is the only one in whom we'll find meaning and purpose, which means this, you can stop searching. It's here for you already. You can find it in him. Another thing that Kidner says, I love this. This is one of his favorite. The point of Ecclesiastes is to help us stop pretending that what is mortal and temporary is enough for us. Because we as humans were made for the eternal. So Ecclesiastes is to help you stop pretending that the temporary things are enough for you. They're not. Don't let the world deceive you into thinking that. Don't try to pretend your way into believing that this is making me happy. It's not. Because you were made for something bigger than that. You were made for something more than that. This is the gift of Ecclesiastes. To remove the blinders of our pride and our short-sightedness and to point us in the right direction. We do, as wise as Kohelet is, as wise as the teacher is, we do have this one advantage over him though. Um, And that would be time. That would be the very thing that he talks about a lot, time. He, from his perspective, writing when he does, can merely point us in the right direction. He can say it's not this, and it's not this, and it's not this, and this, and this, and this, and leave us this gap and say it's, it's this. But we, because of time, and more importantly, because of the New Testament, we don't just get pointed in the right direction. We can actually see. We can actually see where he's trying to point us, a clear view of what we're looking for. He says in 9.1 that all of us, the righteous and the sinner, the wise and the fool, we are all in the hand of God. But this is kind of the crazy thing. The writer of Ecclesiastes only really has like a half picture of all that that God is. Like writing from his perspective, he knows that there is this God that holds all of us in his hand, but he really does not even know the fullest picture of what all that God is like. like he doesn't have, all of, doesn't have all of the answers in front of him. He doesn't have the whole picture there. We have the clearer picture, though, because God has revealed himself to us in Jesus. This is what the writer of Hebrews says in his opening verses of the book. Hebrews 1, verses 1 through 3. Long ago, at many times and in many places, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, He has spoken to us by His Son, whom He appointed the heir of all things, through whom also He created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of His nature. And He upholds the universe by the word of His power. Here's what He says. In the Old Testament, they had all these kind of go-betweens where God would speak to the prophet or He would speak to Kohelet or He would speak to Moses and then Moses would try to give us a little bit of a picture of what we saw or what He saw. And now, but the writer of Hebrews says, but now we don't have any sort of go-between with this like telephone game when you're whispering through. We get to go straight straight to the source as God himself in the Son comes and reveals to us what God is like. In John 14, 9, Jesus says this, Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. If you want to know what this God is like who holds you in his hand, who holds your fate and your destiny and your meaning and purpose, everything in his hand, if you want to know what he's like, look at Jesus. And, and so this is what we get to see, not only all the things that aren't the point, but we get to see what truly is. And this is our goal for us throughout the rest of the semester, is that we would allow Ecclesiastes to be this jumping off point that says, don't get caught up chasing what the world tells you about wealth. Don't get caught up chasing what the world tells you about success. Don't get caught up. And to jump from that, but then to jump our way into not just the right direction, but the exact purpose and point of it all. And to say, we're not just going to stop here and say, we don't want this. We're going to let this move us into the gospel of Jesus. We're going to show how the gospel answers all the questions that Ecclesiastes is asking or telling you to be asking as we go. That's our hope is that this will move us to a greater love for Jesus and the gospel as we do those things. So let me pray and then we'll sing. Dear God, I do thank you for this gift and it is, it's a book that I have in a lot of ways ignored um, because I haven't fully known what to do with it. Um, But Lord, I'm thankful for it and and the things that it tells me about the emptiness of this world and trying to find meaning within myself. 
Um, Lord, I pray that you would give us open hearts to what your word wants to say to us and, and hold this book up as a mirror to our lives to show us where we've got caught up chasing things of this world rather than chasing you. But more than just that, I pray, Lord, that you would then point us to yourself by pointing us to your Son. You would point us to the good news of the gospel and move us into not just the right direction, but the exact point of all of life, the exact purpose of all of our existence, um, to know and honor and serve you through your Son, Jesus. I ask you that in the name of Jesus. Amen.